who were Ohola and Oholiba. These two sisters appear in Ezekiel 23, and God doesn't have very many nice things to say about them, but who are they? And also, what does God think about entering partnerships with non-Christians? What are the different cups mentioned in the Bible, and why do they matter? What is the biggest cup mentioned in the Bible? You're going to be glad when you know about the biggest cup in the Bible, and you'll find out what it is today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a minister, and I used to work for a local newspaper. One time, I was covering a city council meeting at a small town near me, and the sheriff was discussing an award that he and his wife, Olinda, had received from the state. And I've never forgotten this. I went up to him afterwards and I I said I wanted to mention their award in the newspaper. And so I asked how to spell his wife's name. You always got to ask that whenever you work in newspaper, you should never assume that you know how to spell someone's name. No matter how sure you are, you always have to ask, even if their name is something like John Smith. Did you know there's like a dozen different ways that you could spell John Smith? And so for anything as basic, even as that, you have to ask how to spell it. And so I asked him, how do you spell Olinda? And he looks at me, he says, O, Linda. Olinda is spelled O, Linda. (laughs) And so I felt stupid for asking, even though I did have to ask. And so anyway, I kept thinking of that story. Only reason I'm even telling that is just because I kept thinking about that story as I worked on today's lesson. It's about two women, two sisters, and their names are Ohola and O. Holiba. Don't ask me how to spell those names. You can look it up yourself if you want. We're just one chapter away at this point from the midpoint of Ezekiel. Chapter 24, it's not only halfway through the book of Ezekiel, but it's also a major turning point in the book. The first 24 chapters of the book are about Israel. We might say they're almost exclusively focused on current events that were going on in Jerusalem at that time. Chapters 1 through 11 were about what was going to happen to Jerusalem, and chapters 12 through 24 were about why it happened to Jerusalem. And so many of the things that we've been studying, they've detailed Israel's sins, the specific things that Israel did wrong to bring God's judgment upon them. And one recurring theme that we keep coming back to is a retelling of Israel's history. Chapter 16 did it, chapter 20 did it, and now we're going to do it one more time in chapter 23. This chapter is going to retell Israel's history as an allegory, or you might say an analogy, and it's going to use two sisters, Ohola and Oholiba. And they are not real people. This is essentially a a parable. It's a fictional story. It's meant to communicate some spiritual truths. And what a story it is. This is going to be another R-rated chapter in the Bible. No kids allowed today, and I'm not kidding about that. If a pastor got up in front of his congregation and said the things that this chapter says, most of the people would probably be asking him to resign the next day. He would be accused of being unnecessarily graphic. He would, he would be called a pervert, a degenerate. People would say, like, I understand what your sexual analogy meant, but why did you have all the analogies to use? Why did you have to use a sexual one <laughs> of all the analogies out there? Why did you pick something so graphic and raw to communicate the main idea of your sermon? They, I mean, they'd literally be telling him to quit. They'd say, you need to resign, man. You're sick in the head. Are you some kind of porn addict or something? That's probably what they would ask Ezekiel if he got up in front of their church and shared this message. I think that's how Christians of modern times would have responded if people, if Ezekiel showed up at their church and preached chapter 23. I mean, I can't, and when it comes to chapter 23 here, listen, guys, I can't even tell you the number of times that I've seen atheists post verses from chapter 23 of Ezekiel as a way to discredit the Bible. Someone, you know, it goes like this. Someone will mention on social media how they just love God's word, how they think it's so beautiful, how pure, how perfect it is. 
And many times, if it's a public comment, you will see an atheist respond to that and they'll post a comment with a verse from Ezekiel 23. So this is, again, it's not gonna be a chapter for youngsters. You don't see this one in the illustrated children's Bible. So hide your kids, hide your wife, turn to the 23rd chapter of Ezekiel, and let's get into it. On the bright side, if you wanna call this a bright side, I do plan to cover the whole chapter today. It's a lot of verses. There's there's actually gonna be more verses I cover today than what I've ever covered before on one episode of this podcast. This is a, this, it's cause this is a giant story. There's not like a cutoff point, but also I think the story goes by pretty quick. This is not gonna be my longest lesson ever, but I'll probably cover the most verses ever. And we, and again, we've already covered similar material to this in chapters 16 and chapter 20. So one of God's problems with Israel, um, that, that, that's what this is gonna focus on today, is the problem that, that they often follow after other nations in fact, they'll even become infatuated with those nations, sometimes infatuated with the gods of those nations, and create alliances with those nations, and, and, and they would kind of turn their back on God whenever they did this. And so I'm talking about nations like Egypt and Assyria. When they would go after those nations for help instead of, tr- instead of trusting in God, God would be offended because they trusted in human powers rather than trusting in his power. And so let's just get going. Chapter six or chapter 23, verse one, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There, their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Ohola was the name of the elder and Oholiba, the name of her sister. They became mine and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ohola is Samaria and Oholiba is Jerusalem. So Ohola and Oholiba, they represent two sisters. And perhaps you're saying, why are there two sisters representing one nation? And that's because Israel was a divided kingdom. They were split between the north and the south. And, you know, it sounds kind of like America back in, back in the good old days of the, of the Civil War. They had some deep philosophical differences between themselves about freedom. And so the nation was divided. In, in America, it is almost permanently split because of this divide. And so Israel, they, I mean, they actually did split. They took things a step further. The Northern Kingdom of Israel, consisting of 10 tribes, they were not as accepting of worshiping the true God as the Southern Kingdom was. The Southern Kingdom, it was two tribes. And so they had a national split. The 10 tribes region, it was larger. Uh, It was not extremely larger. Um, The Southern Kingdom tribes, they still had quite a bit of power. And so those southern kingdom tribes were Judah and Benjamin, and Judah had the kingly line. So that was really important. They possessed the city of Jerusalem. That was God's holy city. It had the temple of God in it. It had the Ark of the Covenant in it. And so the southern kingdom was still pretty significant. You know, if you do the math, yeah, it was smaller, but it was still a, a pretty much a, a significant force in the region. And so when the northern kingdom of Israel broke off and decided to do their own thing, they selected the city of Samaria as its capital. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom, they kept Jerusalem as its capital. And so the parable that God tells is a tale of two cities. It's Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria is described by the name Ahola, and that means her own tent. And if you remember, you know, a tent, it, it represents the tabernacle. It represents a place of worship. And it's called her own tent because up in the northern kingdom, the Israelites, the Israelites up there had set up golden calves for the people to worship. They set up their own tent, their own tabernacle. And so that's why her own tent, that's the name for them, Ohola. Then the southern city, Jerusalem, and it's referred to in this chapter as Oholiba, that means my tent is in her. So God's tent, God's tabernacle, which is the holy temple, that is in Jerusalem. And it says that the two sisters, perhaps meaning both the northern and southern tribes as a whole, that they had sought political alliance with the nation of Egypt. And God's main criticism in this chapter is when the people would go to the world for help rather than trusting in God to deliver them. 
And it's not entirely clear to me yet, like which time this was referring to. There could you could look at multiple instances in Israel's history that they buddied up with Egypt. So the metaphor that God uses is that Israel offered its breasts to Egypt for Egypt to play with. And the Egyptians enjoyed this alliance. And so Israel found it pleasurable as well. And that's what the metaphor is going for here. And it's going to get a lot worse. Okay, let's read the next set of verses. And they describe the northern kingdom's sins specifically. Starting at verse 5. Ohola played the whore while she was mine. And she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians. Warriors clothed in purple. Governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men. Horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them, and she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted. She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness, they seized her sons and her daughters, and as for her... They killed her with the sword, and she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed on her. So in this section, God talks about how the northern kingdom, which is Samaria or Ahola in this story, she lusted after the Assyrians. She sought an alliance with the nation of Assyria. It was a very evil nation. And that's why it describes them as desirable young men. It says they were horsemen riding on horses. So, you know, it's kind of romanticizing them that like a young girl might say, um, You know, he came in riding on a horse. You know, it sounds like a love story. Well, the reality turned out too good to be true. Because as she gave her body to these lovers, they only used her for sexual purposes, and then they discarded her. If you'd put it in modern terms, she was a one-night stand, and then they ghosted her. And the explanation for this in Israel's terms is that they were supposed to be a people who were consecrated unto God. And when they didn't stay true to God, but they put their trust in other nations and made alliances to other nations, they only used Israel and they didn't truly care about her. And so basically, Ahola was executed. Um, You could say God had Ahola executed. Your cross-reference for this section, if you'd like to track it down, I'm not going to read these verses today because I'm reading so many other verses, but you could look up 2 Kings 16, 5-7 and Isaiah 7, verses 1 and 2. That's where you could see that Israel made alliances with Assyria. And then the very next chapter of of 2 Kings, chapter 17 there, God lets Assyria roll back in and they conquered the northern kingdom and carried them off. And so Samaria was wiped out. Ahola was put to death. And that's the punishment for idolaters and adulterers in Old Testament law. And so if you look at, at this from God's perspective, Israel had committed adultery on him. Actually, it says that she she hoard herself out to the Assyrians. You know, that's a phrase. Doesn't sound very Christian to say that. <laughs> Doesn't sound very nice. If you heard a modern preacher using words like that, he would be called judgmental, right? He'd be called mean. They might even call him a hate preacher because he would use such blatant words for sin. But one thing that you notice in Ezekiel and sometimes in the other prophets, they tended to use very clear, I would say, very clear words. They'd use strong words when they were describing what Israel was doing wrong. They didn't use these polite sounding words like we do today. You know, we hear someone committed adultery and we want to call it an affair. Uh, We want to call it, we don't want to call it whoring out, right? (laughs) It's not the kind of phrases that we use. We hear that somebody had premarital sex. We say that they made love or that they slept together. But the Bible calls that whoredom. It calls it fornication. It has even more shocking things to say about it. Here in the next section, Ezekiel 23, verse 11, her sister Aholiba saw this and she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. She lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors clothed in full armor, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And I saw that she was defiled. They both took the same way, but she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion wearing belts on their waists, with flowing turbans on their heads, all of them having the appearance of officers, a likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. When she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, 
and they defiled her with their whoring lust. And after she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust. When she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her, as I had turned in disgust from her sister. Yet she increased her whoring, remembering the days of her youth, when she played the whore in the land of Egypt, and lusted after her lovers there, whose members were like those of donkeys, and whose issue was like that of horses. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth, when the Egyptians handled your bosom, and pressed your young breasts. So Ahola saw everything the northern kingdom did, her big sister, okay, and, and the southern kingdom saw what the northern kingdom did. You'd think if you saw your big sister do something really stupid and then pay the consequences for it, that that would turn you off from doing it yourself. Like that's what would happen if you had any sense, right? You see other people make a mistake and you try to learn from it. You don't go do exactly what they did and then expect that you're just going to get away with it. So the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, Aholiba, how could you ever think you'd get away with it? But they just went and they did everything that Ohola did, and they did it, they did it even more. Verse 14 says she carried her whoring further. She lusted after the Babylonians. That was what the, the Chaldeans are mentioned there. It's probably talking about a moment in 2 Kings chapter 20, if you read verses 12 through 19, when King Hezekiah literally invited the Babylonians into his treasure houses and he showed off all of his riches. And they were impressed. They were so impressed that right now in Ezekiel's day, the, it's, it's the very next chapter from where Ezekiel is right now, they are coming back. They are going to ransack Jerusalem, and they are going to carry those treasures away. And the most graphic part was actually there where it discussed Israel's lust for Egypt. It says she lusted after the Egyptians desiring their members in, in the issue. <laughs> this is really, 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 really sanitized language in our modern translation of what it's talking about right there. The actual Hebrew is talking about the men's genitals and talking about their ejaculation. And it says she desired for the men to press her breasts. Again, the Hebrew is more graphic. It's referring to, to fondling her nipples. And so this is why I'm telling you, if a preacher actually got up and said the things that this chapter is saying, if he got up and said it behind the pulpit of your church, he would be fired. You know, they'd say, why, why can't you just say that it was bad to make political alliances with Egypt and Babylon? <laughs> like, why do you have to go and make it all sexual, right? Ezekiel, you pervert, why are you doing this? <laughs> I, I, hey, if, a, if he got up in my church and was saying that, I'd find it hard to defend as well. <laughs> but I'm just telling you, this is what, the Bible says. I mean, I feel a little bit uncomfortable myself here saying things on this Bible study that I never thought I'd be saying in a Bible study. But but listen, this is the way that God is choosing to communicate his message in this in this chapter. So so what do we learn from this? What do we learn from the sexual metaphor right here? Well, let's look at the real world situation that this is drawing from. It says there's a young girl. She's become very sexually promiscuous. She's been sleeping around, you know, to use one of those euphemisms that I mentioned earlier. It's just sanitizing what, what sin is, but, but bear with me here. We've all known girls who did stuff like that. Maybe we mocked them. We, you know, kidded around that they had daddy issues or something. You know, they just throw themselves at any guy who comes along and makes them feel special. That's what some young girls do, right? They jump into bed with any guy who makes them feel good or is good looking enough, and then... We've all seen it happen before. Once he's had his way with her, he dumps her. She moves on to another guy. He moves on to another girl. She just keeps letting men use her because she likes the attention. She creates a fantasy in her mind that, you know, this is the guy. This is the one for me. It's going to work out this time. He really cares about me, but he doesn't. You know, he's just interested in using her for her body, and it's not a genuine love. You know, this is the kind of thing that happens in real life. Everybody's familiar with it. When I was a youth pastor, I can remember on a few occasions, I had to counsel young boys or young men who they who they'd committed fornication with their girlfriend. They said they slept with their girlfriend and they, the excuse they tried to play with me was that they said they did it because of love. They were so much in love, they just couldn't wait any longer and they would blame love for it. But that is not love. That is called lust. Okay, and that's a very, very frequent word. You could say it's the main theme word, the word of the day in this chapter is lust. And that's why we say love 
waits. If you genuinely love someone, you don't want to cause them to sin. Okay, real love. You can't say, oh, I had to sleep with her because it was, you know, love drove me to do it. No, real love desires the best for someone else. And it is not God's best for someone to have sex with you if you are not married to them. but But if your desire to have sex with them is more powerful than your desire for them to remain pure before God, that is not a legitimate love for them. That is not true love. If you truly, you know, I'd say this to the guy, if you truly loved her, then you would wait until you were married to her because that's what God would want and you would want the best thing for her. If a guy's pressuring a girl to have sex with him, and I know it can go the other way around too, okay? Sometimes it's the girl pressuring the guy. Listen, girls, he might talk a good game. He might say it's all about love, connection, intimacy, all that kind of stuff. But that is not a biblical love because true love wants to wait. Even if you don't, if you don't want to, but because you don't want to cause the other person to sin, lust says that I can't wait. Lust says I got to have you right now. Okay, lust is just about the the moment, and it's in in the end, it's just using them for their body. And so this chapter is presenting a very familiar, real world situation to us. It's these girls who are searching for love in all the wrong places, like the old song used to say, jumping from guy to guy, but not finding genuine love, just being used, okay? This is a good lesson for young people to learn from. And it's also teaching a new perspective to the Israelites about their own history. In this little story, this parable, God is the good man. He's the perfect man. He's over here. He's saying, I've already committed myself to you. Why do you just keep running to other guy and other guy and other guy? Why are you desiring what they have? When I've already given everything that you're ever going to need, I've already given it to you. But Israel just keeps running off to these guys and they just keep using her for sex. It's a parable, okay? They're just using Israel for what they can get from it, but they don't really care about Israel like God does. And so God is really using some shocking language in this parable because he's trying to shock the hearers back into reality. They They were living in Israel's sin. So this was their history it had stopped being shocking to them. You know, because if if you've been in your own history for so long, if you've been in your own sinful lifestyle for long enough, if you're on the third or the fourth affair, the affairs stop being shocking. And that's what had happened with Israel's. Their, their consciences had been dulled. They had become desensitized to their own sin. And so God uses some shocking words in this chapter to get their attention. The so-called hate preachers, those fire and brimstone preachers who often get bad reputations, they're often accused of being over the top, that they're just going for shock value. But shock value has its place. You got to use wisdom in applying it, but sometimes shock has its value. Well, we're about halfway through our verses for today. I'm going to take a short break, and whenever we come back, let's get back into this and talk through some more of this chapter. Okay, let's get back into it. We're going to pick up at verse 22, and now we're going to read about Oholiba's sentencing. And so let's just get into it. Therefore, O Oholiba, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stir up against you and your lovers from whom, you've, from whom you turned in disgust, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors and commanders, all of them, officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. They shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of peoples. They shall set themselves against you on every side with buckler, shield, and helmet, and I will commit the judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. And I will direct my jealousy against you, that they may deal with you in fury. They shall cut off your nose and your ears, and your survivors shall fall by the sword. They shall seize your sons and your daughters, and your survivors shall be devoured by fire. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your whoring begun in the land of Egypt, so that you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. Okay, so here, all the people that Israel had previously been flirting with, okay, (laughs) as as we'll say it that way, they're going to come back and they're going to destroy her. She's going to be assaulted 
by all of those evil nations that she had previously been courting. She sought alliances with them, she shared too many secrets with them, and it came back to bitter. And this is just a good allegory for flirting with sin. You know, you've probably heard the old saying before that sin will always take you, it'll always take more than you wanted to give, cost you more than you wanted to spend, take you further than you wanted to go. Flirting with sin is playing with fire. That's what Israel did. It's like with King Hezekiah that I mentioned before. He shows off all the treasures of his kingdom, showing them off to the Babylonians. He was being arrogant and stupid. And then the prophet Isaiah came to him. He said, you have no idea what you just did, Hezekiah. He said, your prideful little stunt, that's going to cost your people. Because the Babylonians, they're going to remember all the treasures you had. And they're going to come back here someday looking for them. And that is going to have disastrous consequences. It was all because you wanted to show off. And so, according to these consequences, I mean, here's the day of those consequences. The Israelites were going to be ransacked, taken away. It's said here having their noses and ears cut off. And it's one of those things here where it's like, is that is that figurative language or, or did that literally happen? And I'm not totally sure myself. But either way, the, the symbolism why God is saying this, it is clear. This was a punishment that the Assyrians would do to adulterers. If in the, in the Assyrian in Assyria, if a woman committed adultery, they would take her and they would cut off her nose and cut off her ears. And then with the man, they would cut off his his private parts and and so this was in Assyria, this was considered the just punishment for committing adultery. So they would but let's focus on the woman here because this is what God is is a transposing or whatever on Israel, he says, I want to cut off your nose and your ears because this is what Assyria, this is how they handle adultery. And so if you like Assyria so much, you're going to get their punishments for these things. And so it, they would do it that way because if you think about it, <laughs> a, a person with a nose cut off, that would be a horrible way to live. You can, you can live without a nose, but you're not going to look very good. You're not going to feel very good. And it would make you so unattractive and, and literally repulsive to other people, they would never want to have sexual relations with that woman ever again. This was a punishment in Assyria for adultery, as I said. And so God is saying, if you like the Assyrians so much, you're going to get the Assyrian punishments. You know, sometimes what God gives people as a punishment is exactly what they want. One of God's judgments is giving people exactly what they want. And sin brings disaster. Sin is bad for you. And if you're desiring sin, God might just let you have what you're going after, and then you get to have all the consequences that come with it. Israel had committed adultery against God, so God was going to give them what they wanted. They wanted Assyria, so they get Assyria's punishment for adultery, a cutting off of the nose. And again, I don't know if it's what literally happened. Um, Here's one thing we know, that when Assyria attacked the northern kingdom, they put hooks in people's noses, and they took them prisoner that way. They carried them off to Assyria with literally with hooks in the nose, like how you might drive cattle or something. And so it's a it's a horrible thought. I, I'm not sure if that's what this is referring to here, um, but I'm just throwing that in. Verse 28, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate, into the hands of those from whom you, whom you turned in disgust, and they shall deal with you in hatred, and take away all the fruit of your labor, and leave you naked and bare, and the nakedness of your whoring shall be uncovered. Your lewdness and your whoring have brought this upon you because you played the whore with the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You have gone the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. For I have spoken, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. So it says here, Judah could have learned from Samaria's example. The younger sister could have learned from what happened to the big sister, but she is following in the big sister's sins. And so now she's going to face the big sister's consequences. It's just once again, a reminder to learn from other people's mistakes because you're going to make enough mistakes of your own. <laughs> so take opportunities to learn from other people's mistakes and just don't, don't repeat them or make them for yourself. What the Northern Kingdom received 
was not just a serious punishment for adultery, but they also received God's punishment. The Old Testament law prescribed the death penalty for adulterers. And that's a little bit shocking to think about in modern times, but this was considered the fair punishment if you look at the Mosaic Code. Both members, in in God's law, both members who committed adultery were to be executed. Wasn't even cutting off the nose or something like that. It was execution. And so God's punishment for adultery and other sins, when you look at it in our modern um, perspective, you know, the, the 21st century American point of view, Western point of view, you might say, we think that looks way over the top. We think that seems pretty harsh because we, we probably all know somebody who's committed adultery or committed some of these sins that would get you literally killed in the Old Testament. And we think, wow, well, what that person did was bad, but did they really deserve death for that? Well, let me point out this. If we did have the death penalty for adultery, then that person you know who committed adultery, then they probably wouldn't have committed adultery. Because punishment, the death penalty, it's a deterrent. It's something that keeps people from wanting to do those sins. And so people think, well, hey, I want to have this affair, but it's not worth risking my life for. You know, if we enforce the death penalty for the things the Bible said, like, like rape, if we enforced a death penalty for rapists, that's what the Bible did, we would have less rape. The death penalty for adultery would mean less adultery. Less adultery means stronger marriages. Stronger marriages means a more well-adjusted kids. That means less crime and a healthier society. All these things play off of each other. This, these things have a trickle-down effect. So be careful before you ever criticize something in the Old Testament law. Um, you be careful about that because a, a lot of stuff in the Old Testament law, I mean, I would, I guess I'd say all of it, it was, it was God's perfect law when it comes to the civil code, we would at least say. I know that some stuff changed with the New Testament, but there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that were pretty good ideas that society might do a lot better if it followed them closer. And so people want to criticize the Old Testament sometimes. They want to say, God was this harsh meanie in the Old Testament. And he was all kind of gentle in the New Testament. They talk about the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. But that's wrong. It's all the same God. He is a holy God all throughout the Bible. When Jesus rules the world someday in the millennial kingdom, he's going to rule with an iron scepter. You know, do you think you can get away with idol worship in the millennial kingdom? No. Death penalty. There's not religious freedom and, and freedom of speech and all that in the millennial kingdom. There's no First Amendment in the millennial kingdom, Jesus is the king of the world. And he everything he says is right. And if you disagree, that's a you problem. <laughs> Something else in these verses that was mentioned, but I didn't talk about it yet. It talked about some cups. It talked about a cup of horror and desolation. And that's something I want to come back to at the end of today's lesson. So we're going to cover this whole, we're going to cover this whole chapter today, unbelievably. But I'm going to come back to the cups thing at the very end. So let's pick it up at verse 36. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ohola and Aholiba? Declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children and sacrificed to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And behold, this is what they did in my house. So this chapter is winding down, and Ezekiel, once again, he addresses both Ohola and Oholiba. In this chapter, kind of like some of the other chapters lately, it's driving home the danger of the comparison game. To say, oh, well, I'm doing better than they are, so I must be okay because I'm doing better than them. I'm more spiritual than them. I didn't do this thing and they did that. I I did this thing and they didn't do that. You know, God's telling them, listen, you're not more spiritual than them. You're really not. And if you think you're better to, to the Southern Kingdom, he says, if you think you're better than the Northern Kingdom, you're not. And so don't play this comparison game. It's, it's a waste of time. It's getting all of your perce- perception askew. And th- you don't compare yourself to others. You compare yourself by the word of God. So spirituality is not something that's graded on a curve. If you were better than the Northern Kingdom, even if you were, so what? You're not being judged in comparison to the Northern Kingdom. You're judged in comparison to God's 
standards. So keep your eyes on God and on his word. Don't judge things. Don't even judge yourself by what other people are doing. And then I'm going to go through the last set of our verses here today. And let's try to finish up the chapter here. So it says, verse 40, they even sent for men to come from afar to whom a messenger was sent and behold, they came. For them you bathed yourself, painted your eyes, and adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch, with a table spread before it, on which you had placed my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and with the men of common sort. Drunkards were brought from the wilderness, and they put bracelets on the hands of the women, and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said of her who was worn out by adultery, Now they will continue to use her for a whore, even her. For they have gone into her as men go into a prostitute, Thus they went into Ohola and Oholiba, lewd women. But righteous men shall pass judgment on them with the sentence of adulteresses and with the sentence of women who shed blood, because they are adulteresses, and blood is on their hands. Okay, let me pause there for a moment. God tells them, you made yourself look pretty for these other nations. You drew them in seductively. You made allegiances and alliances with nations that you shouldn't have. And then they used you and they abused you and they discarded you after they had their way with you. They wore you out, the scripture says. Verse 45 says that when men with a moral conscience, when they look at them, they are going to be disgusted with them. When men with a good head on their shoulders look at Judah and Samaria and how they constantly stab God in the back because they wanted to make alliances with, with heathen nations, they're going to be shocked and horrified by it. So we might look at a partnership or an agreement that you make with someone, and we, we might want to just think about it in terms of wisdom. Is this a wise or is this a foolish arrangement? And, and there's a moral angle to it as well. Is it right or wrong to enter into this partnership? Think about the story of the Gibeonites in the book of Joshua. The Israelites entered into a treaty with these people, and they didn't even pray about it first. And the implication from that book is that if they would have at least prayed about it, that God could have done something to alert them to the fact that they were being taken for a ride by the Gibeonites, but they didn't pray first. And so they entered into an immoral partnership with that people group. Remember the book of Proverbs, it says that God will direct our paths, but what we have to do first is acknowledge him in all your ways. You know, that verse, it says in all your ways, acknowledge him, and then he will make your path straight. So it's not an automatic thing. You got you to gotta pray about it first. You know, he's not just always going to work it out for you. You got to acknowledge God in all your ways. At least pray about it before you decide. And so think about the partnerships, the relationships in your life with non-Christians. Think about the wisdom of that. I'm not saying you can't ever have anything to do with non-Christians. Just always cons- just pray about it first and think about it from a wisdom perspective and from a moral angle too, if it would apply. Okay, so let's really finish up the last verses for today. (laughs) God reveals his punishment on the two sisters, Judah and Samaria, and here is the sentencing to them. Verse 46, For thus says the Lord God, Bring up a vast host against them, and make them an object of terror and a plunder. And the host shall stone them and cut them down with their swords. They shall kill their sons and their daughters and burn up their houses. Thus will I put an end to the lewdness in the land, that all women may take warning and not commit lewdness as you have done. And they shall return your lewdness upon you, and you shall bear the penalty for your sinful idolatry, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. And so that finishes the chapter. Bless you if you've hung in here this long. (laughs) I know this was a long, brutal chapter, but chapter 23 is now done. And in chapter 24, everything's about to change. After the, you know, we had the introduction in Ezekiel, chapters 1 through 3. And now we've had 20 chapters straight that have basically been the the same thing. Judgment, doom, and gloom on Israel. Chapter after chapter of that. Judgment, doom, and gloom on Israel. And I got to tell you, if I can be a little bit transparent, (laughs) this book has been getting a little harder to teach the last few chapters. I hope it's not been repetitive for you like it has. It's been harder for me to teach because it's hard to find fresh things to talk about after 20 chapters straight of this. And I thought I was actually doing pretty good up until about we hit chapter 20, it's been a little harder to teach this material in a way that differentiates it from all this stuff that's come before. And yet, I, you know, I just don't have it in me to, to just skip a chapter or skip even a verse. We haven't skipped a single verse all through this book 
because I'm like, if God has put this in here for 20 chapters in a row, he must have a reason for it. Okay. He could have just done all this in one chapter. He could have announced Israel's fate. He could have announced his reasons for it. He could have done that in one or two chapters. God didn't have to spend 20 chapters on this, but he did. And so if it's that important to him, I just wanted to make it important to us as well. But I'm going to admit it, it has not always been easy. Ezekiel has been kind of a depressing book so far. Um, and, and even still, some of the most horrifying things in the book of Ezekiel, they are yet to come. But the focus of the book is about to change because in the next chapter, all these things that God has been warning about so far to, towards Israel, they are finally going to happen. And then Israel will be no more. There won't be an Israel left to warn. But there are some big things ahead in the second half of the book that talk about the world more on a global scale, the world at large. And so, hey, thanks for sticking with with me this far. And I hope you're going to keep sticking around to hear what God has to say to us in this book. So if I want to take a short break here, and then we will recap what I see as the main ideas that this chapter is bringing out, as well as I want to give you an announcement about the next few episodes. So stay tuned. So next time on the podcast, well, next time I won't be here. <laughs> next next week on Monday is Labor Day. And I usually release my episodes on Monday, um, but I have, I've learned to take holidays off for the podcast because the listenership is just not there. So come back in two weeks. I will share next time on the podcast. I'm going to have an interview with a friend of mine, a personal friend. His name is Dr. Larry Brothers. He's an optometrist. He's also written a book about angelic encounters. And so I, this book is a little bit out there, but I can vouch for him that he is not some nut. He's not some wild, crazy guy. I've known him for more than a decade. And this book, it's thoroughly researched. It's got tons of scriptures in it. And he only relies on firsthand information in the stories that he shares. So I'm, 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 I don't want to tell you much more than that because I'd like you to just hear about it in the interview program. That'll be here on the podcast in two weeks. The name of the book that just released this summer. It's called And the Angels Came. And so I'm going to release that episode on here the week after Labor Day. Again, thank you for being here. If you've been blessed by the podcast, um, I just ask you to say a prayer that more people will find it. Share it with somebody who needs it. Um, I I don't know. I find it hard to imagine that there's anyone out there who needs to hear a message from Ezekiel 23. This, This has been a gnarly chapter. But if you know someone who would benefit from today's message or any of the other episodes, I just ask you to share it out. If you have a question on this on this chapter, um, I, I kind of hope you don't. But if you do, <laughs> leave a comment or shoot me an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I would be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you'd like to hear about in the future. And I actually, I would really love some feedback because this podcast, we're, we are coming up on two years for the podcast. And all along, my format has been that I like to bounce between Bible studies in Ezekiel, as well as just random topics that I just, things I just want to talk about. And so as we approach the, the halfway point of this book of Ezekiel, um, I'm just wondering, would you guys like a little break from Ezekiel or do you want me to just keep on powering through? You know, and I, again, I think the book, it kind of freshens up a little bit and it goes in a new direction here after chapter 24. But if you would like to hear a short study, perhaps on a different book of the Bible, something like Second Peter, um, that's something I would, I, I love the book of Second Peter, so I'd really be happy to get into that if you want to. And uh, I could give Ezekiel a six-month break if you wanted that. Um, if, if you want, just let me know. If you want me to keep just powering on through Ezekiel, because there's some great stuff ahead in Ezekiel, we'll just keep going. So any feedback on that would be appreciated. If I had it my way, I'd just keep on going with Ezekiel because there's some really neat stuff in the second half. Um, But if you're enjoying the podcast, but you just like a break from Ezekiel, you want me to put it on the back burner, you know, I can understand that too. So just share your thoughts with me. In closing today, I want to recap some of the main themes of this chapter. Okay, so let me start with this one. Number one, be careful who you enter into partnerships with. That's what Israel got in trouble with. They were entering into political alliances with ungodly nations, and God didn't like that. He wanted them to be unattached to these other nations because he just wanted them reliant on him alone. 
And God was so offended by what Israel did by just seeking these political alliances. He came up with a very explicitly sexual type of analogy to describe how gross it was that they would seek alliances with foreign nations. And so that brings me to just a second, I don't, I don't know what you might call a reflection <laughs> from today's lesson. I just can't get over the fact that if Ezekiel was the pastor at your church, you would probably be calling for him to be fired after this message. <laughs> You'd be saying, what, what is wrong with you, man? Like, why'd you have to go and make it so dirty? This is supposed to be church. It's a sermon. It's not appropriate to talk about this stuff in church. <laughs> That's what we'd be saying. You might be thinking that towards me for even talking about this on the Bible study, but it's in the Bible. <laughs> so I don't know. That just I just can't get over that. Is the Bible too dirty for a Bible study <laughs> for our churches? It, it probably, it, frankly, it probably is, okay? I think the modern American church churchgoer would be really shocked at some of the things that you find in Scripture. And sad to say, I think there's more atheists out there who have an awareness of Ezekiel 23 than the average Christian does. And like I said at the beginning, I've just seen so many atheists post verses from this chapter, I mean, more times than I could count. So just something I've been reflecting on there. Finally today, I want to end by talking about the cup of horror. And this was mentioned in verses 32 through 34. Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out, and gnaw its shards, and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. So he talks there about something called the cup of horror and desolation. Sometimes when God gives something to somebody in the Bible, it, it describes it as giving them a cup to drink. And this cup can be a good thing or a bad thing. In Ezekiel 23, the cup of horror and desolation, that is a, obviously a bad thing. It's referring to the destru destruction that is just about to sweep across the land. But let me share a few more cups from Scripture with you before we go today. Scripture also talks about the cup of salvation. That's Psalm 116. Verse 13, it says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I mean, how beautiful is that? The cup of salvation. And, and that's the cup that I've drank from. Have you, have you drank from that cup? Now, that's a sweet cup right there. That's a good one. On a more negative note, the cup of staggering from Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. As negative as that sounds right there, God is offering to take that cup away. He's saying he's going to give it to Israel's enemies if Israel would just repent. And that's just another verse that shows God's patience. He waits for us to repent and turn to him. He gives us chance after chance. He offers two cups before us, the cup of salvation and the cup of staggering. If drinking from one cup has caused you to stagger, put it down and drink the cup of salvation. We all get off track sometimes, and then God invites us back. I love that cup. I mean, I love that God will take it away. I love reading about that there. Let me tell you about the smallest cup in the Bible. Have you ever thought about this? This is the smallest cup, but I really like this cup that Jesus talks about in Mark 9.41. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So God says he will bless you for every single good work that a Christian does. If you're a Christian, he's going to bless you for it. He's keeping track of every good thing you do. There's a, there's a book in heaven. It is keeping track of everything you do in this life. That could be a fearful thought. That could be an exciting thought. It says even something so small as giving someone a cup of water to drink, that seems like it's not a big deal. Maybe it's not a big deal. But God is keeping track, and he'll reward you for it. So that's the smallest cup in the Bible, the smallest cup, but it's, it's still significant because it's eternal, because you did it in Christ. So the smallest cup there, but the, what about the biggest cup? I think I teased that at the beginning. The biggest cup in the Bible. There is a cup that is much, much bigger 
than a cup of water for someone to drink. Let's talk about the largest cup in the Bible. This cup is so big, this cup contained the sins of the whole world. I mean, my goodness, not just the sins, but the wrath of God for every sin that had ever existed in all of history. Jesus talked about this cup when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray just before he went to the cross in Luke twenty-two forty-two, He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus contemplated going to the cross, he used this motif, as he talked about it, of drinking a cup. It was the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath for all the sins that had ever been committed in the history of the world. What we read about, what we've read about for 20 chapters straight in Ezekiel, Israel was drinking a cup of God's wrath for its own sins. We read that many people will drink the cup of staggering, and that's for their own sins. But what Jesus did was he took a cup of wrath for all the sins of every other person who had ever lived in the entire history of the world. Jesus took that cup, and he took it willingly. And since he did that, I don't have to drink from the cup of staggering, or the cup of wrath, or the cup of fury. I don't have to drink from the cup of horror and desolation. I don't have to drink Ohola's cup or Oholiba's cup. I get to drink from the cup of salvation. That's what Jesus did for me. Part of him didn't even want to do it. He said, if anything could prevent me from having to take this cup, he said, God, is there any other way? But there wasn't. So Jesus took it for you and he drank it to the very last drop. And then there's something that Jesus asked me to do to remember what he did. He asks me, to drink from a cup, to eat a piece of bread and drink from a cup. Every so often, they do it at your church, they do it at my church, we just did it today at my church. Every so often, we gather with other believers and everybody takes a cup and drinks together and remembers the cup that Jesus drank. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 calls it the cup of blessing. And in the next chapter, in verse 26, it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you to drink the cup and remember the cup that he drank for you.